today on the Indie Opera Podcast. Well, part of what Opera Modern likes to do is to not only do modern music, but pieces that are rarely done and that you don't get the opportunity to perform. And so Le Donne Curiose is such a wonderful Italian and, and beautiful little comic piece. I mean, it, there's some cross-dressing in it and <laughs> some fantastic music and some fa- fantastic, funny, you know, Italian charm and just flavor. And, and it was just such an interesting piece to do. We have a discussion with Opera Moderne and their upcoming production of Les Donnes Curioses, which they will be performing at the Players Club. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. This is Peter. This is Noah. And uh, we're here to talk about what's happening in town and indie opera companies, what's happening across the country. Have you seen anything since we last recorded a podcast? I have not. I've been busy. Uh, we're trying to get this this new opera, The Whirly Gig of Time, which is actually the correct title. We were wrong for a while. Uh, of Chad Jenkins and Whitney George, uh, a collaboration between the two. And I've been working on it. It's a, I have a little role in it, and uh, actually kind of a big role. And so I haven't really been out seeing anything. But uh, we missed a lot, right? We did miss a lot. Well, I saw. Um, I did go see uh, at BAM. I saw Artis with Les mm. Florissant. Right, and Florissant. that's by that's by that's Luli. by Luli. Luli, Luli, right? Luli, Luli right? That's right. <laughs> lots of dancing you know yeah there no was, yes yes okay. there's lots okay. of dancing i mean yeah. basically this was a restaging of one of les arts florissant's early productions the sort mm-hmm. of i think it was a production that sort of made them famous mm-hmm. it was a little odd it was like seeing a repro- you know a restaging of a reproduction of an you know what i mean a re of a re <laughs> sort of, of re. like a, a hall of mirrors mm-hmm. um I love their stuff. I saw them do Le Boread at BAM, and I was transfixed for the entire show. Um, and this was a little, for me, disappointing, just in that it was just such a traditional... It wasn't wacky enough for you? I like it wacky. You like it wacky? I do, too. Um, yeah, I mean, and it sort of comes up with that question of what do you do with staging? Do you update it or not? And when you do it in sort of this old-fashioned thing, it actually, for me, it didn't work as well. Did it feel kind of dead? Well, you know, it, there is a lot of dance, and dance is, if you're doing very traditional dance, it's plié and kickity-kick, plié, and walk, <laughs> walk, walk, plié, kickity-kick, plié. You know what I mean? Right. I don't think it's that simple, but right. Yeah, no, I get No, but saying. it's yeah. like, all right, 20 minutes of that. And when they do something modern, when they did Le Boreade, they had this modern choreographer. I don't know who it was. It was unbelievable. They were throwing each other around the stage, and you know. Right, and right, my, right. My jaw was like going, wow, you know, so. I know, and, and in pieces like that, where really, they don't have the same kind of stories or same kind of, they don't yeah. have the same pull on audiences, and they're full of dance, so yeah, I agree with you. Why yeah. not get new new kinds of things in there, you yeah. know? I mean, and it wasn't bad. I mean, I don't want to put that out there. Maybe it's just. No, but it, we don't do bad versus good, right? We were, you know. <laughs> it just didn't always work. There were a few moments that were, there's a dream sequence that Atis has a dream and it's just, it was so transcendently beautiful and it was just the singing. I mean, yeah, there mm. was some dancing, but the singing was so good. Mm. Um, and then let's see. What else? Oh, they also did a concert that I went to as well. That was also great. It was just uh, from various pieces. That was wonderful. What else did I see? 
Oh, yeah. I saw the Opera Moderns uh, premiere. Oh, right, right, right. How'd it go? It was great. And we interviewed them later. They're on our show today. Yes. So we're going to interview them later on in the podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the reasons I want to interview them is because I saw their opening and it was so cool. And we'll talk about what they're doing next. And then I saw this thing called Connie's Avant-Garde Cafe, which is not opera. (laughs) But it it was so good. It was like... Well, what made it not opera? Did it involve more than one media? It was food Mm -hmm. and theater and Mm -hmm. performance art and interactive. That's opera. Yeah, all right. That's opera, right? right? We're talking, you know, broad definition, of course. But it's that's opera. That's an opera. Well, it felt like an opera being done by like a frat party or something, you know. Well, maybe someday. It was good. (laughs) I I loved it. I really did. That's awesome. So I think that's all I've seen. That's a lot. Yeah, and there's, there's stuff we've missed, but... There has been a lot of stuff that we've missed yet. So the summer is usually a slow time in opera, but now things are really kicking into full gear in the opera world, especially, you know, of course, in New York. And one of the things that happened this summer that I totally missed, um, Opera Mission, have you heard of them? I have only heard of them from you. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Jennifer Peterson... Okay. Do you know who she is? No. She did the music on VPR's last production. Oh, stuff. The, okay. She ha- did several performances of what she's calling uh, Some Assembly Required mm-hmm. this summer. And they did La Boheme and they did it in pieces. And what they mm-hmm. basically did was they just got everyone together to just sight read the piece along with hosts there describing this is what, you know, a conductor looks at it. This is how a... You know, uh-huh. A dramaturg looks at it. They had Corey Ellison working with them. It sounded like it was really great. And I was going to go and see their last one, but the her- so it's like an it's like an educational thing. It's like a, to show you to people who don't understand like technical. Well, it's educational. Work it's it's yeah. a way to do a show that where you don't have to rehearse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's it sounded just like a lot of fun. Um, yeah, that does sound good. And I missed it because the hurricane came and they moved the date and I couldn't do the other date. Well, I had so many people call me and tell me that, you know, Armageddon was coming. <laughs> and yeah. um, the other thing we just missed, last night American Opera Projects and String Orchestra of Brooklyn did a uh, semi-stage concert of Philip Glass's Penal Colony. Do you know it? Oh, in the Penal Colony based on Franz Kafka's short story? Do you know this story at all? This is like my favorite Kafka story ever. Crazy. Oh, I'm so sorry I missed that. Okay, so this is the story in a nutshell. There's a guy with a machine, right? Mm. The machine imprints upon criminals um, like some sort of dictum against their crime. So if you stole something, it would print on your body, you know, thou shall not steal. But it does it over the course of 12 hours, like just slowly pushing needles into your skin until you die. This horrible, torturous thing, right? But no one cares about the machine. There's just one guy left, and he's the only one who, who thinks it's an important thing. And he, like, can't get the money he needs to, like, service the machine. It is one of the creepiest stories. And I found out that Philip Glass wrote an opera, but I've never heard it or seen it. I'm curious if anyone saw it last night. Oh, if, listeners, if you saw In the Penal Colony, which we missed, which was dumb for us to miss, but email in, though, if you saw it. We would love to hear what you have to say about it. One of our goals is to be informed of what's going on so we can miss things and feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. One, that's one of my goals. I'm trying to feel worse in general, you know, <laughs> these days. Uh, so let's do some news, okay? All right, news. Indie opera news. News, news, news. Uh, I'll, I think I will edit that out. Okay, that sounds good. News. 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 So uh, this is what's coming up. 
Opera OG is doing something on October 5th, if you can get there in Duane Park. Um, and they're doing some Toscano and Rice and Lewis and a whole bunch of stuff in Duane Park. Let's see, Da Capo has started their season. They're doing Tosca. And I should mention that because we are interviewing Michael Capasso later on in relation to the Opera Moderne. So you'll actually hear his voice later. But they're doing uh, Tosca and that starts October 6th. Um, and then also coming up, which I think is interesting, Opera on Tap is, do you know what they've been doing? They've been doing chapters across the U.S.? Have you heard about No, this? I didn't know that. They've done stuff all over, actually. There's, there's a, I think there's Boston, Chicago. They're actually doing something in um, Denver, Colorado. Mm, wow. Yeah, October 20th. So somebody should send us some plane fare. Well, I'm, I'm, the funny thing, I'm going to be there. <laughs> really? In Denver? I arrive on the 21st. An omelet or something? I'm going, flying omelet? <laughs> I'm going to see my uh, family out there. Oh, cool. So I don't know if... Problem is, is we probably have plans, <laughs> so I'm gonna miss oh, it. Wow. I'm gonna yeah. miss it. But they're doing um, two nights. They're doing um, some of the. They're gonna do the zong. Uh, sorry, let me say that right. They're gonna do the mahagoni zongspiel. Oh yeah, zongspiel. The mahagoni zongspiel. Yeah, which is awesome. great. That's sort of the precursor to the full mahagoni opera. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> do you know it at all? I know it really well. That's one of my favorite operas of the 20th century. Really? Mahogany. And yes, I, I think it's it never got its due. And it's there actually there have been a lot of productions re- recently, but it's a hard opera to do because it's it basically you know it's epic theater and it's very Brechtian and you basically feel bad about yourself after you see it. And it's fantastic. It's a great opera and <laughs> the music is excellent. It's like watching the news. Feel. It's like watching the news. Yeah, it's like watching the news a little. <laughs> but that's that's the whole opera. This is actually just the this is just the Zongspiel. It's a much shorter. Right. It's a thing. right. It's like a suite. Yeah. It's set. I think the Zongspiel was originally staged inside a boxing ring. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. That sounds like it would work though. It, it's you know it's it's a crazy. Do you know the story at all? Well, I know the opera because right. I once again wanted to do that opera really badly. I started oh. to work on a production that didn't happen. Oh, that's okay. <clears throat> but yeah, no, that's... Uh, I know the score really well. <laughs> yeah, it's great. great. And I'm also Typhoon. Do... do you know that part? Yeah, of course. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then they're they're also doing Hugo Dissler's Totentanz. Totentanz is which is a famous Liszt piano piece, isn't it? It is. Well, it's it's Death Dance, right? Death Dance, right? But I yeah. think that he, the I, I looked at their website, and I think it's more about just looking at life and what you achieve in life before you die. It's not. But meditating on the dance of death. Yes. Yeah. So they're doing that at a tavern, Bender's Tavern in Denver, Colorado. And it's called Bender's Tavern? Bender. Bender's Tavern. <laughs> that would never work in the British Isles. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then let's see. And then later on, of course, there, there are a couple of big things coming up. There's, um, you know, Chelsea Opera is doing the medium in November, mid-November 10th, 11th, 12th. I want to I want to see that. Oh, it's a great opera. It's a great opera. <clears throat> and the other big thing, of course, on the horizon is Gotham Opera's Dark Sisters. And I'm going to try to get them on here. Yeah, I'm going to sell my children to go. I want to see that opera badly. I don't have any children, but if I had them, I'd sell them. Yeah, I don't think you have time to make children by then. What? It's like, what, like two months? How long does it take to make children? <laughs> <laughs> They've really cut back in public schools, haven't they? Well, I just feel like everything everything is, you know, takes less time than it used to. So, right? Sure. Yeah, sure. So that's Nico Muley's uh, opera, and we've mentioned this before, and that's about a, 
a multiple, what would you call that? I don't know, like a polygamist uh, Mormon yeah. sect? Isn't that what it's about? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if they're, ex- I don't think they're necessarily Mormon. I thought I thought they were maybe uh, like, um, like a Mormon schism group. Yes. You know what I mean? Because yes. I don't, you know, of course the Mormon church doesn't practice polygamy officially anymore. They don't practice it. They got it yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Are we going to get in perfect. trouble for that? I hope not. Yeah, of course. Well, if we have any Mormon listeners, then we're lucky. So. <laughs> and we'll probably re-mention that in another show. So that's yep. news. All right, so up next, we're going to hear um, an interview that we did with Opera Moderne. Yeah, they're this incredible little company that's going to be performing. It's Le Donne Curiose. Le Donne Curiose. Say that yeah. again. Le Donne Curiose. Oh, I like how you say that. I think I say it pretty well. This is gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they were really great. This was our first six-way Skype interview. Yeah, two of us and four of them. Oh, Yeah, it's cool because it was all people who do completely different things all working on the same opera. You know, it's not like we have all singers or all, you know, we got a performer, we got the conductor, we got the director. We'll call this segment Opera 360. Yes, Opera 360, the potpourri edition. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's listen to it. All right. So we're here with Opera Moderne, as my pronunciation has been corrected. (laughs) And we have four people on this call. We have Rebecca Greenstein, who's the executive director of Opera Moderne. How are you doing, Rebecca? Hi, Peter. Thank you for having me. Great. Great to have you on the show. And we have Michael Capasso, who's the director of La Donna Curios, and also the general manager of DiCapo Opera Theater, which a lot of our listeners will know. How are you doing, Michael? I'm well, thank you. Good morning, and thanks for having us. And Samuel McCoy, music director and conductor of La Donna Curios. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And we also have Elspeth Davis, who is singing the role of Eleonora. How do you I think say it? It's, it's Eleonora. Okay. Oh, okay. Sam, right? Eleonora. Yeah. Oh, Eleonora. Okay. Oh, my God. You said that beautifully. Say it again. <laughs> Eleonora. Oh, I love that. Hi, Elspeth. How are you doing, Elspeth? I'm good. I'm not going to say thanks for having me because everybody else did. So <laughs> I'm fine. The original, yeah. So. Yeah, this is our first, I think, podcast before 12, p- uh, 12, and it's also our first five-way podcast. So lots of firsts uh, on this one. Six-way, actually. Six-way, is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's six. Fun. It's oh, very yeah. modern of us. Very modern. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> So tell me a little bit about Opera Moderne. I know that you had your premiere at Galapagos, which I went to see. Tell us a little bit about that uh, premiere. We were fortunate enough to really come together with a a program that we thought was unique and something that would be interesting to the audiences of New York that is not generally done. And originally on the program, we had Britain's Phaedra, Libby Larson's um, Songs from Letters, which are letters that Calamity Jane wrote to her daughter Janie and Libby Larson had made a beautiful song cycle out of. Mm -hmm. And then we had George Crumb's very 
unique and otherworldly ancient voices of children. We had all the instruments set up for the ancient voices of children, including a musical saw and, you know, chisels on the piano and all kinds of interesting things. Um, and we get one day before the premiere and my mezzo-soprano, who was to sing Phaedra, <coughs> Elspeth Davis, um, <laughs> came down with strep throat. So uh, at the last minute, I was stuck. The idea of the concert was about the mother-child relationship. So with the, each piece, like the Phaedra and the, the Larson and the Crumb, it's all about this mother-child relationship. Fortunately, I've been around to Capo Opera and Michael Capasso long enough that I've gotten to see some really great, unique modern pieces come in, like uh, Tobias Picker's Emmeline and um, The Crucible. The Emmeline um, is one of the pieces that I absolutely love. And I called the soprano for the Emmeline last minute. I'm like, how do you feel about coming over like in one day and singing some excerpts from Emmeline? And she did it. And we didn't have a pianist that knew the piece. And Pasi and Matsugati came in and sight read the piece for the opening of the concert. Wow. And I know. <laughs> and it turned out really well. Yeah, it was and really good. It was really good. Yeah. Now, now, the New York Times reviewed it. was got a wonderful review. They mentioned the crumb. They never mentioned Carmine Alfiero. Correct, right? the conductor. And I, I'm sorry, as a conductor, I was shocked because I thought Carmine was incredible. Yeah, no, he, he really pulled the piece together. How can you not see that or write something? Well, you know, maybe an editor, maybe an editor took it out. Who wrote the art? Was it Tomasini that wrote the article? No. Who was uh, it? Zachary uh, Wolf. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, no, it's it's unfortunate. I, I because the conductor is is really the glue for any piece. It's, yeah. And it's funny. It was such a great sound. Anyway, so now your company is doing this Wolf Ferrari piece. Why did you choose to do La Donna Curios? Well, part of what Opera Modern likes to do is to not only do modern music, but pieces that are rarely done and that you don't get the opportunity to perform. And so La Donna Curiose is such a wonderful Italian A and, and beautiful little comic piece. I mean, it, there's some cross-dressing in it and <laughs> some fantastic music and some fa- fantastic, funny, you know, Italian charm and just flavor. And, and it was just such an interesting piece to do. And we're, we're setting it in the 1920s. Uh, in the 1920s, you had the wonderful changeover where women were discovering their independence. So with the speakeasies and prohibition and, you know, it just seems to work with this opera. And, and we're actually working at doing it at the Players Club, uh, which is a, you know, charming. It's, it's such a beautiful space and works so well with this 1920 setting of the opera. So, um, Samuel, well, let, let's talk a little bit about the opera. It, I, I read the synopsis and it basically reads like uh, an episode of Jersey Shore. Uh, <laughs> really? Oh yeah, it's That's great. That's my favorite show. Oh it, no, don't say that. <laughs> I can't participate in anything that condones the Jersey Shore on any. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, tax money's going to the Jersey Shore now. No. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, they're 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 angry because you know they give tax credits for anything that's filmed on the East Coast rather than the West Coast. So oh. the state of New Jersey gave tax tax money to Jersey Shore. They've contributed so much to the economy. That's actually the only thing I think they should have is the tax credit because what they do for the economy is so spectacular. The more oh, filming that sad. can happen on the East Coast, the better. Yeah, I know. So now, it, basically, it's women trying to get into a men's club with a password and a set of keys. They each try to steal some keys and dress up as men. And 
I mean, it really, it's it's like reality TV. Um, <laughs> How long is the opera? I would say about two hours. And it's a two-act opera? Is it three acts or...? Three acts. Three acts, that's right. We might have said that earlier. <laughs> uh, as a director, looking at this piece, did you, this whole movement to the 1920s, is this something that, that you like to do with older pieces? For me to update anything, it has to, as long as it makes sense, I'm actually not a... Um, I don't do a lot of updating. Uh, really does depend on what the piece is. But with something like this, and in the setting that we're looking at, it would be so, it, it just seems to really fit. And it's a piece that's based in Comedia del Arte, so it's, uh, which is a, a timeless uh, you know, form, which you can move just about anywhere, and it will still work, and it still speaks to the, the situation and the relationships between men and women. And, you know, it's... It, I think the production will be influenced actually not so much by Jersey Shore, as we said, but much more by maybe Ballwalk Empire. I know that when uh, Wolf Ferrari was writing this, he did a few operas based on the playwright Carlo Goldini, uh, who at that point was dead. Goldoni. Yeah, Goldoni. Sorry, I'm looking at it. Oh, say it again. Goldoni. I spelt it wrong. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Carlo Goldoni, who... He's Venetian, and he's carried in, in Venice, and it's all, it, there's a big Venetian connection here with the whole thing as well. But he was basically uh, reaching back an entire century for this story. You know, this story comes from way back. No, I believe it was done as a, as a period piece taking place in, 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 in historical Venice. Has doing this in the 1920s, has that affected the interpretation in any way? Did you have to modify anything? Not yet. I, I mean, you... We certainly won't change uh, anything other than the setting. The, uh, I mean, even if there are, there are a couple of you know, references to, to site-specific things, I mean, it takes place in Venice, and we're obviously going to have it being taken place in Gramercy Park. So, uh, but that's the kind of thing that you just have to, um, you have to forgive. You know, there are so many things when you go to the opera that you forgive anyway. I mean, there are people up there you know, singing in a language that's, you know, incomprehensible to the public. So yeah. You might as well go all the way and just stage it wherever you want. Yeah, I'm with you, Michael. <laughs> I, I'm with you on that one. I like I like the fantastical in opera. I don't I don't need reality. I've got too much of that around me. <laughs> Another thing that lends this piece to updating is that even though the play the, it's based off Carlo Godoni's play from the 1700s, um, the librettist Luigi Zugana actually changed most of the words to what would be 1900 contemporary Venetian speech. Mm. So there's actually some very witty um, sort of colloquial remarks that um, translate really well for us. Some of the slang that's written between the husbands and wives, they, um, especially the wives, call, call some of the husbands um, jackasses or, or <laughs> fools or um, scoundrels or stuff. The stuff that um, was sort of contemporary speech, I think, in the, uh, the early 1900s. So it lends itself well to that um, adaptation, I think. What scale are we talking about? Are you doing this with the, I don't even know, is there an orchestra? How, how are you doing this? Well, we're going to be using um, piano primarily and I believe string quartet. Mm. Um, that's still uh, in the process of working all of that out. But now, Did I hear correctly, are you gonna, you're actually going to go into the park and do a scene or you're just setting it in the scene? 
No, we're going to be. No, an- the Players Club is on Gramercy Park. That's why. Um, that's what I meant. I thought it would be interesting to go outside. <laughs> Peter has an obsession with doing opera in in uh, non traditional spaces. We even did a show mm-hmm. on it. So yeah, <laughs> in nature, in nature, opera in nature. I'm sorry. That's all right. Just but an like, idea, though. It's an idea. To make the audience. No, I mean, move. there's a Barker role in the third act, so maybe we'll just go. Um, like in the Prospect Park or something and try and get on the river. <laughs> Go to East River, yeah. Okay, oh my God. To, we'll punt across the Hudson <laughs> and we'll sing. So a question for, for Samuel. Uh, what's the music like? Is it is it Does it sound like Muscani? Does it sound like his other operas? Does it sound like Sly? I think it's most... I mean, if you're going to listen, uh, compare it to other Wolf-Ferrari stuff, it sounds like Il Segreto di Susanna. Um, mm. Those guys were written really close together right. um, it's it's interesting it's it's definitely 18th century pastiche style so you hear sort of baroque qualities you hear uh, a lot of um, classical Mozartian Haydn qualities to it mm-hmm. but there's still that underpinning of um, of mod- modernity uh, especially in the way the har- harmonies move and he does some very interesting harmonic transitions or builds to um, climaxes there's a quartet in the f- uh, second movement that has just this beautiful um, harmonic change leading right up to the climax and then all of a sudden you're back into C major and it's very sunny classical <laughs> again Most of the the melodic writing is um, parlante style, which is um, it's a lot like Verdi's Falstaff, where oh, okay. you get a lot of it's more like just conversation right. with accompaniment. Are there arias, like proper? There's one aria proper that I would say. There's a couple that you could call ariosos if you wanted to, but I think there's just one solid aria. Let's just just mention a little bit about Will Ferrari because a lot of people have no idea who this person is. Um, uh, but his dates, and generally, he was the, the end of the 19th century, and he died in the 40s, right? Yeah, yeah and, he died in 1948. And he uh, he was not a forward-thinking composer. He actually met Verdi, and he's, he, I guess you could call him a classicist. He was... Or a neoclassicist. Neo- yeah. 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 One interesting thing about him is that he studied in Munich with Joseph Reinberger, who was a student of Brahms. Mm. And the way Another Brahms one. taught was he was very much study Bach, study Mozart. Yeah. Exactly. So um, Wolf-Ferrari had this compositional training, and, and it, you hear a lot of that in the piece. And it's kind of amazing to think that at the same time in Europe, you know, Stravinsky was, was in full swing, and he was just about to write The Rite of Spring. And I mean, it was just such a different sound between that and, and uh, what's going on with Wolf-Ferrari. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that Wolf-Ferrari's music is 
as innovative as his kind of Verismo contemporaries, or do you think it's a it's do you think it, it relies less upon new harmonic language or more than somebody like Mascagni? I think um, it, what's interesting about it is that it, it kind of moves away from the Verismo writing, where mm. the Verismo writing is rather thick and and very dramatic and um, full of emotional expression. I think he is. Um, I think Wolfrari starts to try to clean things up, simplify things a little bit, and so you get some. Well, um, but he, I think he also wrote. Excuse me for interrupting, but it, he wrote to the piece. I mean, he the, the music for La Donna Curiosa is very uh, much suits the the characters and the setting and and the the levity, if you will, of of the piece. Yeah. But where he tried to be, a, where he tried to write a very small opera was Idrielli della Madonna which is, oh. a, is flat out Verismo. Interesting. Uh, it's cool. It seems like uh, Volferrari got had good luck with tenors. Wasn't the tenor who premiered Le Donne Curiose was uh, Hermann Jadklauder? Am I saying that wrong? Uh, Anybody find that guy? I'm, I'm, honestly, I don't know. I know he had... I know it was... No, it was... Hold on. It was somebody... All right, open it Wikipedia. Was somebody, it was a very, very <laughs> catty cast. Yeah, happy. yeah. I thought it was. Oh, I'm on Wikipedia now. It says Herman. Yeah, Herman Jandklauder. But <laughs> but that guy's voice is in, is amazing, you know. And so is Martinelli. Those those are kinds of tenors that you you don't even really hear sounds like that anymore. I feel like you oh, know. Right. Well, because they if they audition today, they'd never get a job. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the thing is that that's all. You know, you have to understand who was around in those days. I mean, the pool. Of singers that were available to to an empresario like Gatti Gazzazza, who could uh, you know decide and you know what I think something should be said about Giulio Gatti Gazzazza as an empresario, and the fact mm. that he championed so much new work, and he came to the Met in 1908 from La Scala, bringing his music director Foscanini and. The thing that was so important about Gatti Gazzazza was that he was an empresario at a time where the vast majority of the work being produced on stage was either new or had been written in the last 25 to 30 years. He felt that it was, since he had premiered so much Italian opera or and championed so much new work there, that it was also his responsibility to give American opera a chance and American composers a chance. And uh, there's a, a tremendous amount of, of American opera that was commissioned by the Metropolitan during his regime and premiered, and also new work like 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 Le Donna Curiosa, like the uh, the Wolf Ferrari. Wow, so he was uh, like a really important guy that we don't hear a lot about, but you know, sounds like he had his hand. Well, I think in... also, he was a tremendous impresario. He really took the Met to another level. Mm. Uh, with the support of Otto Kahn. Otto Kahn believed that artists should just be artists and rich people should pay for it. I feel that way, too. Kahn for president. I, I, you know what, I, I would, I, boy, do I wish I had an Otto Kahn. But, but <laughs> so the people who were the, what they called the Diamond Horseshoe at the time could come to the opera and they owned it, their their boxes, and it was, it was called the Metropolitan Opera and Real Estate Company. So does the Players Club have boxes? They do not. They do not? There's no, like, gold ring? You know what? It actually may happen. We're actually, it's so funny that you mentioned this, what we are trying to set it up. It, it, again, earlier, I think somebody mentioned Boardwalk Empire. We'd mentioned, you know, the whole yeah. speakeasy feel. Um, and we're one of the coordinations that we're doing with the Players Club is actually a, a, a 
very different and interesting seating arrangement for this production to make it feel kind of certain tables will be a certain way. There's certain type of seating. There's right. some priority seating. Now, when you're when you were thinking of doing this piece, we started to talk a little bit about the casting, the tenor and all. How how difficult was it to to cast this? Are, were these stock roles, or, or or did you have to find a tenor who can hold a C for three minutes? Uh, <laughs> you know, we we did the, the casting, but our whole cast, I I really feel very confident in. There are no high Cs. There are no high Cs. <laughs> the women <laughs> have some high Cs. Yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about Eleonora, the the role in Eleonora. Now, which of the is she the lead of the three lady? It's three ladies, right? There are four. four there ladies. are four ladies. Three of um, two are married. One is engaged, and one is the maid. I wouldn't say that there's really no lead in the opera. It's very much an ensemble piece. Um, she is married to a man named Lelio, and when she comes in to the opera, she's trying to convince the ladies that she has figured out what it is that they do in this club, and she's telling them that um, they're all alchemists, and they're trying to figure out how to access the Philosopher's Stone. So I'm not sure it's going to, how it's going to translate um, to 1920s Venice, but I definitely say she's the most neurotic of the women. <laughs> By neurotic, do you mean that she is gullible? Do you mean that she instigates fast thinking more than the other people or like what does that mean or what does that look like i think she's much more the instigator huh. of the group uh, if you look at her music everything is eight sixteenths it's dotted it's all very fast um you can tell just from the score that she's a fast talker but <laughs> there's a lot of language that has to get out very quickly um so it's interesting, though, you're learning a, a role that very few people even know. And it's not like right. you're singing a Carmen where you can say, oh, I'll take this take on it or that. And you've seen exactly. a thousand of them. You, you have to sort of pull it from what you see in the score. Has that been a challenge or is it really it's, easy? <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's, it's not easy. Um, it's, ne it's never easy. But I think what you suggested before, they are stock characters, Um so the challenge really comes into how to make these four women different from each other. Mm. The music helps a little bit. Um, with There's the ingenue who has a lot of flowing long legato lines. It's a really great duet with the tenor. But I think it's really the difficulty comes with trying to make them individual characters so they don't just become this like mush of four women that sort of travel together in a pack throughout the opera. Do they sing in close harmony and, at, at points, or do they sing more kind of off of each other more? It's, more it's, each, yeah, there are a couple of, of scenes where they have they sing together with some harmony, but it's a lot of it's just bam, 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 bam. Like, you know, like they're talking. Back and forth, back and forth. Back yeah. and forth very quickly. Well, and I think, I honestly think that we, the success of what makes everyone so different in the ensemble is in the casting. We've chosen very distinct and different women, uh, personality-wise, voice-wise, that really fit into their characters and will be able to make these characters come to life. I feel very comfortable that you won't ever have any question of who is what and doing what, where, when, because each performer that we've selected for everyone in the, in the cast are so different, and it's so wonderful how unique and what a large batch of talent we have to choose from. Earlier, when you were talking about the difference of the writing for the female characters, and that, one other interesting thing is that their vocal ranges are very similar mm -hmm. when singing solo lines. Mm -hmm. It's only in, 
things like the quartet, Beatrice's, um, clearly the mezzo in that situation. But then throughout most of the opera, they could be sung by many different voice types, I think. Mm-hmm. In fact, Elspeth is mezzo singing Eleonora, and Wolf Trap cast a coloratura soprano to sing Eleonora. Oh, yes. so it's very different. Yeah. What about when it comes to the, the kind of fock or the weight of the voices that are required by this piece? Do you think that they're generally asking... Is it open, or is or do you think the score is asking for dramatic voices, or? I don't know if the score is asking for dramatic voices. Yeah. I wouldn't think at all. It's very not Mozartian, but I think that's the weight yeah. of the voices because they need to move very quickly. The thing is that it was written in a time, you know, Geraldine Farrell was the first to Angelica. She sang Butterfly and Carmen. But it was written at a time when everybody sang everything. Yeah. And you were a soprano. You know, the whole Bach idea, you know, wasn't really established right. to any significant extent, especially uh, here. You know, if you were a tenor, if you were Caruso, you sang Forza del Destino one night and three nights later, Elisir Amore. And that yeah. was okay. You know, and then La Juive and then Rigoletto. And the same thing with all of those voice categories. People didn't get pigeonholed so much as they are nowadays. Would you want that now more, Michael? Or is that something you'd like to see Personally, now? Personally, yes, because I feel that too much people get tied into into categories, you know, too much and being told what they can and cannot sing and what's going to kill them. You know, I mean, Rosenfontel you know, didn't lose her voice singing, you know, Norma and Forza when she was very young and, you know, also Carmen and also, you know, Flaviata. Nowadays, however, it's, it seems to be a little different. And I think that's why you can have a, such a, a broad cast in, uh, in, you know, the world premiere of this because they had these singers that were around and they chose people that had the right voice and the right character for the role and just cast them without having to worry so much about the, you know, the detail. Now, the, let's talk about how big is this cast? It's um, nine. There are nine characters. And it's, it's four women. Like a baseball team. Yeah. Like a baseball team. <laughs> there are four <laughs> women and uh, five men. Right. So it sounds like it's a great project. I'm planning on definitely going to see it. Um, and we're going to put all the details about the performance on our website, including where to get tickets, and etc. And it's been really great talking to you, Rebecca, Michael, Samuel, Elspeth. Yeah, thank you guys thank for you. coming on. This is great. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank all you. Right. Guess what I just bought? You bought um, the complete Summa Theologica by Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> no? You got two words right. <laughs> I did? What do you mean? The complete? Yes. The complete box set of Dark Shadows, the cult uh, television. Is that what you got? That would be awesome. <laughs> All right. Am I way off? Tell, just tell me. You have it's to the complete West Wing. Oh, cool. I've never seen West Wing. That should be an Martin opera. Sheen and yeah, you think so? Wouldn't People that be great? That we we got to You know do what it. I think would be a great opera? I think it's just cuz I'm crazy, but have you ever seen the kids animated movie The Secret of Nim? Yeah. It, that would be a great opera. <laughs> like that would be a great opera because you've got, you know, I don't know, it's it, it's it's very scary. There's not a lot of dialogue. I mean, it would be hard to stage, but Are, I don't are you know. sure it's not been done? I think somebody needs to get, like, somebody really zippy to direct it, like Wes Anderson. Like, be like, you know, get him and tell him to stop doing movies. 
He's going to do an opera version of The Secret of Nim and then get someone to write the music. I mean, maybe what made me really think it would work is because the voice work is so great in that movie. Like, they almost kind of, I don't want to say they sing, but there's a lot of, like, declamatory, you know, Mrs., what's her name, Miss Thisbe is always kind of, like, yelling for somebody or calling someone's name or reacting vocally. There's not, not very much text, you know? Well, I let's smell. put it out as a challenge. All right. Write the opera, send it in, and we'll premiere it. Po- first podcast opera. <laughs> that we inspired. Yes. <laughs> That would be very cool. Yeah. Wow. Right. That we really went off track there. We did. That's okay. It's you know maybe we're just broadening the track. That's what we're doing. <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit about coming up on our future shows. We want to do one about the opera you're working on. The Whirly Gig of Time, right? Yeah. Which is very exciting. Uh, it's a very very difficult score, but uh, but it's in the works, and we're doing it in a month. So we're going to see what happens. And uh, let's see other news. I made a thing called a Pinterest. Mm-hmm. Uh, interest board and I've been putting on indie opera companies mm-hmm. and w- w- it's been really great for me because like all the research I did for today I just go and I look through everybody's w- website you know and awesome. it's all listed there they're all links to them and I, I try and find out what's going on um, and then the other thing is I put a calendar on our website for people to list their productions on and we are going to do that <clears throat> also a future podcast I want to do one on um, Chicago like the scene, what's going on in Chicago. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I don't know what's going on there. If you are in Chicago and involved in opera, you should, and listening, Here you should uh, contact Here us and you will be our point man. So I looked, and a lot of the opera companies there aren't really trying to be indie. They're just trying to be opera companies, you know, do mm-hmm. the standard works. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't really find any that fit sort of the indie mode of what we've got here in the city. Yeah. But I did, I, 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 I did I find think one. that's the case in Philadelphia, too. I, every time I go to that city it's always like turandot aida oh really yeah i never see small works or well maybe i'm wrong i'm gonna blow your mind with that one Uh oh really yeah i started interviewing the music director of the international opera theater and they're they're based in philly Oh, okay. What kind of stuff do they do? They do all new stuff. And actually, they're an interesting company. They're in both Philadelphia and in Italy. So they're mm-hmm. this international, they're bi-countrial. Bi-countrial. Bicameral? Bi-national. Bi-national? There we are. International. Or maybe they're just bi-national curious. <laughs> Perhaps, but um, they they write new stuff, and they do. Uh, they did something uh, based on the Decameron. They oh, wow. and they have a project coming up that is amazingly interesting called the Buffalo Soldiers, and that's, oh. you know who they were. Buffalo Soldier taken from Africa. Yeah, right. That, that, that's what I know about them. That Bob Marley's song. We're getting there. They are during World War II. They're a black company of soldiers, American soldiers, who were uh-huh. in Italy, and it's a really fascinating story. I'll have them tell you all about it. So Philly does have at least that company. Oh yeah, well, I wasn't saying they didn't. I was just saying <laughs> I don't know about it. There's and, a lot of things I don't know about. And then in Chicago, though, I f- did find this one really interesting opera company called the Haymarket Opera Company, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they're doing early music and they're doing it in uh, really unusual spaces and I'm going to learn more about them and maybe we'll do a whole podcast on early music as indie opera because there seems to be a lot of it. I'm a big fan of early music being done in new ways and in weird ways. It's almost like uh, MTV of an earlier age. It's music with dance, you know what I mean? It doesn't Yeah, it's it's not so much integrate not so much integration. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That was profound MTV. That was good. Yeah, I thought you were going to talk about Yo! MTV Raps, if we could have worked that in. 
I would have been really happy. I actually don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that is. You don't remember that? That, that was the that was the weird part about MTV. They used to have one show for rap music called Yo Exclamation <laughs> Point MTV Raps, right? And then all of a sudden it was like everything is rap. <laughs> and, and so it was like it was really strange to think that there was once just one show that was rap, you know? Right. Yeah. That's totally over my head. So uh, we want to encourage everyone to write me so I can so you can get on our um, calendar if you have a group that, with events. And I also encourage you, if there are groups, I, I should add to the Pinterest uh, board so your group can be listed as one of, as one of America's finest indie opera companies. Also, uh, if you would like to uh, just make comments, write us. Oh, yeah. and give us money. We always have to say that. Yes, lots of money. <laughs> Go to our website and give us money. We'll take, um, like... I would say commodities to spices, uh, dyes, you know, iron, whatever you have, we'll take it. We're kicking it up old school. Mm-hmm. Yep. A donation. Can, it's, it's like we're back in the souk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very good. <laughs> well, thanks for listening. All right. That's goodbye from me, Noah. And me, Peter. See you next time. See ya. We would like to thank Rebecca Greenstein, Michael Capasso, Samuel McCoy, and Elspeth Davis from Opera Moderne for that great interview. Um, the recordings you've heard throughout the show of La Donna Curiosa is a recording of the Orchestra del Teatro La Fenice from the 60s. Also, the music we used to lead into our news was, of course, James Madalena singing in Nixon in China. Got Stitcher? We're on it, so get it. Stitcher is an award-winning provider of news and talk radio for your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. Indie Opera News, 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 news. Uh, I think I will edit that out. Okay, that sounds good. Or not. That was pretty bad.